Welcome to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Join me for conversations about how to advocate for our kids in a one-size-fits-all world. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're here with us today. We're going to have an awesome conversation like we always do. But first, I just want to mention... If uh, you've been listening, or maybe even this is your first time, and you think, wow, these are amazing people, and I want to learn more about them, I encourage all of you to go to our website, mothersofmisfits.com, and sign up at the bottom for the episode Insider, where you get just that. You're going to get insider info about all of our guests, more about their work, how to get in touch with them, so be sure to do that. But today, we're going to have this incredible conversation with Alyssa DeVere about confidence. And confidence is one of those things, I feel like it's universal. We all want it. We all struggle with it. We also all want it for our kids. So Alyssa is going to share really great insights about not only how to create more confidence in ourselves, but how to instill confidence in our kids. But first, let me share with you a little bit more about Alyssa's background. She is the founder and CEO of the American Confidence Institute, the author of seven best-selling books, a TEDx and Boston Best Speaker, and on top of all of that, a podcast co-host. In all of her work, Alyssa uses brain science to prove that confidence is everybody's superpower and choice. Alyssa has taught over 300,000 highly competent people how to be equally confident. And last but not least, she is a mom to two very tall sons. (laughs) Alyssa, thank you for coming on. Oh, Emily, what a joy. Thank you for having me. I've been so excited for this conversation because, as I said, we all wrestle with confidence and any little advice or big advice we can get on how to be more confident individuals is good for us. It's good for our families. It's good for our careers. So I'm just sure there's going to be so many takeaways from our conversation today. But as we get into this topic, I actually want to start with the fact that you are a proud mother of a misfit. I, I am. I, you know, you mentioned my tall two sons. I've got a quirky rescue dog, you know, mom of many, many creatures, <laughs> all of us. I love the, the word misfit. It's like this kind of cute way of saying the truth is that we are all our unique, special selves. Amen. And yeah, so you mentioned my particular misfit journey. And, you know, it, I tell the story in a longer form, but the essence of it is that my son, Zach, who's now 21, but when he was about eight years old, was diagnosed with a very serious neurological condition. And the prognosis was really dire. They said that he probably would become paralyzed. And at the root of it, it's a neurological condition called dystonia, makes his hands, arms shake all the time, uncontrollably. When I started asking questions and trying to figure out what was going on, the doctors and some of the best supposed neurologists in the world were telling me they didn't know or if they knew, they weren't sure. And they were putting him on brain-slowing drugs. We were injecting excruciatingly painful Botox every Mm -hmm. couple months. And not only did these things not particularly work well, but I kept saying, like, why are you, like, kind of 
taking them out? Like, like, why are you weakening the things that are good? I don't understand why we can't strengthen the things, you know, that the brain uh, neural pathways and the physical muscles that are strong. Why are we compromising the ones that are problematic? And they didn't have the answer. So I was like, I'm a mom. I got to do anything I can for my kid kind of thing. That mm-hmm. internal motivation. And decided to learn brain science. I wouldn't have done it otherwise, but shoot, I had really no choice in some cases, or I thought I didn't have a choice. And as I was uncovering these things and sharing not only kind of this physical ability that we have through our brains and controlling our brains, but now subsequently how we can control emotions and our confidence, it became apparent to me that that's my misfit mission. And so I started the Institute about six years ago. And since then have been honored with the pleasure to empower people all over the world of all different ages. I love that that started something that seemed, I'm sure, very difficult and heavy at the time, started this incredible revealing of your big purpose in life. And I think a lot of parents can identify with that struggle where their child is wrestling with something and one of the treatments is to offer medication or some sort of solution that just dulls the child down. And I know a lot of parents that are frustrated at, you know, why why do we have to lose the good? Why can't we develop the strengths and the talents that my child has? I, I really do think a lot of parents can appreciate your frustration about that. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's some things that you just said, I don't want to lose them. First of all, you said it was my purpose. I fundamentally believe that all of our purpose, you know, Simon Sinek and everyone having us running mm-hmm. around looking for purpose. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, our purpose is to give confidence and, and give mm-hmm. it people that matter to you, your kids, your, your, your spouses, your family, your colleagues, right? That is why we were put on the planet. I, I'm absolutely convicted of that. And so if I can empower people to give confidence what a great gift back to me because if I give you confidence, give your listeners confidence, it comes right back, right? So let's start with that baseline that as parents, we have that superpower. We just don't get taught how to do it. The other kind of myth, if you will, misfit myth, I'm going to use the alliteration mm-hmm. all day long here, is that even those challenges, even those disabilities or weaknesses or whatever you want to call them, I believe we should not only embrace them, but we should use them as much as we use strengths. And, you know, I think Zach, I call him my superhero because through all this journey, he's been such a trooper to let me use him as an example, right? But mm-hmm. when um, he came home, he's a senior in college now, and he says, Mom, I want to be a guidance counselor for mm-hmm. elementary school kids. And I said, that's great. You know, he's a natural teacher and just loves kids and kids love him. And I said, what made you make the decision? And he said, my dystonia makes me special. It makes me different. It makes me memorable. It makes me empathic. It gives me talent and skill and insight that people without this don't understand. And so if I can help kids who have whatever their misfit issue is, feel that they belong and they matter, I mean, mom, that's what I'm meant to do. And I, and then that's why I have this condition. This is why I God or whoever gave me this issue. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm seeing almost crying with you on Mm -hmm. it. It's like, that's what parents should do. They should lift their children up in a way that's not fake. That's not full of bull, you know, oh, you're fantastic. No, 
this is who you are and this is beautiful and wonderful and you're going to be able to use that to do something great in the world with purpose and meaning for you. Mm, And Zach's going to be an incredible advocate for other misfits. I love that. Well, he has to come on. We'll have to book that. (laughs) I want to hear his story straight from him. And I love the conviction in that and that he is embracing it. You know, we talk a lot about succeeding, not in spite of being a misfit, but because of it. And he's an excellent example of that. Okay, Alyssa, so you talk about how confidence is a choice. What do you mean by that? Well, in a very, again, short form on a podcast like this, I don't want to get into too much depth on brain science, but when we have something that triggers fear, so it could be a physical fear or an emotional fear, I'll use something really simple. Say you're driving down the highway and somebody goes and cuts you off. Your instinct is to just swerve out of the way, right? Now, what that really is, is a trigger in your brain in the amygdala space. People who are into brain science know the amygdala is a small but mighty alarm system. And our brain goes, swerve, right? It just doesn't even ask us for a decision. Just do it, right? Fast path down into your brainstem area, react. If it's something that we have more time to respond to, whether it's a physical harm again or an emotional harm, we often don't recognize that trigger. And the trigger is this. It hits the amygdala incoming. You know, somebody just insulted me or somebody made me feel less than, believe me, whatever, or... You know, I'm worried that they're not going to like me, interview, job, relationship, whatever it might be, incoming danger. And in that split second, we get the opportunity, but we don't know we have the opportunity because nobody taught us we have the opportunity to not react, to actually grab it and go, you know what, I'm going to process it in a much better, much more rational, much more uh, calm and mindful part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. So that's the right behind your forehead. So, you know, that's where all the executive function is. And one of the things that frustrates me when it comes to kids is we say, oh, you know, they don't have the executive function. It doesn't develop till it's 25. Mm -hmm. That is true. But if you don't start teaching people how to use it, they'll never be able to do that. Right. So don't discount that they don't have all their brain matter in. Just recognize that as grownups, we have to learn how to do that better ourselves and model it for them and support them in their journey to grab that amygdala moment when they feel scared or uncomfortable and not go into brainstem what I call caveman mode, the defensive survival. And that looks like people who are shy or aggressive, right? So we want to train our brains, train ourselves to be much more, as we like in our vocabulary, mindful, right? More thoughtful, more empathic, more emotionally intelligent. All that means is we want to be able to put it in the top part of our brain where we can actually think and not react. I read a few years back that we react the same to physical threats as we do social threats. So there really is that very real physical, emotional fight or flight response. But talk me through what this looks like, practically speaking. So I am afraid or I receive criticism that triggers this emotional response, what do I do then? Well, so what happens, and again, we're kind of oversimplifying. Let's let's Mm -hmm. give me a real example. Like, so you're afraid of what? You're afraid of somebody thinking less of you as a mom because your kids did something weird, maybe? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happens in our brains, if, you know, in that 
time frame. It's very, very fast, you know, sub-second kind of time frames. Our brain starts gathering data. It gathers memories, gathers emotions, it gathers environmental, you know, so situational information. And it puts it together in a way that says, okay, should I be scared? Yes or no? That's the first question. And then you say, yes, I should be scared. And you start to process it even further. Then you start to say, well, what does this, what are the likely outcomes? What could happen? Now, again, if you let that fear automatically default down into the proverbial brainstem, right? We react. So we get defensive. We may get aggressive. We may want to protect ourselves, our reputation, protect our children. And that is literally cave person, kind of almost animalistic fear that is getting us into survival mode. Like we want to protect things. So we, we don't always think. We're not always rational, right? If we say, okay, you know what, somebody, this could be embarrassing, you know, my kids throwing a tantrum in aisle two, whatever. But I say to myself, you know what, I really don't care what other people think, because I need to focus on my child right now. And I need to figure out what is triggering their emotional breakdown so I can fix it. And I act calm, and literally confidently, I'm making a decision at that moment to not lose it. That's the behavior that we want to literally create as a default in our brains. And when you do it and you show your children, it may not happen the first time or even the 10th time, but they start to build those pathways in their brain too. So they understand that not only that behavior is probably not the best, but when you, like, you know, one of the examples a lot of the neuroscientists and, and really smart coaches that I work with, they use all the time is they say, if you're a kid and somebody said, Emily, you know, you really shouldn't do that because you're not smart enough, or you shouldn't do that because you're going to get hurt. You start to believe it. And that belief creates an automatic pathway that anytime you go to do something that may trigger that fear again, you go back to that place of, I can't do that. So we want to erase all that in our own heads first, and then our children's heads that we're going to deal with this. We're going to deal with it calm and mindfully. And the only way that I know how that it works is to like literally stop yourself in that moment where you're about to go okay person, scream, yell, freak out, whatever you're, you know, and say to yourself, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay here in this place, get my calm, get my so-called stuff together, right? Mm-hmm. And that can be really hard the first time. It can be really hard the 10th time, but you still pra- you keep practicing it. Whoa, that day that you don't lose your cool, your confidence goes up, and guess what? So your kids. Do you suggest that that self-talk is actually something we say out loud in front of our kids so that they can learn the process of calming down, of thinking it through, of not listening to that caveman emotional response? You know, that's a good question. Anytime that you use other parts of your brain, so you write, you know, people say like journaling, like all the gratitude people, like write it down, write it down, write it down. I do believe that outward expression, because it does involve multiple parts of your brain, is really good. It reinforces, particularly for people that need to have, you know, kind of almost a multimedia. We say people are visual learners, whatever. Yeah, well, reality is that we want to invoke different parts of our brain. I think anytime that you are reflective and you're self-aware of that kind of reaction, even if it's past tense, like you lost it in aisle two and you're like, boy, that was not a good mom moment. (laughs) You know, you just reflect on it. That's good. Expressing that to your child. You know what? Mom didn't handle that so well. And that's hard. That's very humbling. You know, I think one of the hardest days of anyone's life is realizing that your parents aren't perfect. Mm. And 
the sooner that you can say to your kid, you know what, I'm human, just like you, and we're all human, we screw up, but it's okay, because we can fix that then, that's all good. So yeah, use your brain, talk about it, get all that, that good juice going inside. But yeah, I think it helps us reflect and understand ourselves what we could be doing better, let alone teach our kids. Mm-hmm. You say that confidence informs every decision we make. How so? Well, a lot of what we're just talking, when you have a, a crossroad decision, whether it's should I apply for that job, how should I handle my kid, whatever it might be that you're making that, like, I don't feel so confident or I'm not sure what to do. That's that moment, that amygdala moment where you can go upstairs or downstairs. So where you apply to college, where you, what kind of job you pick, all of it, all that decision making, that moment of, yes, I can do this, or I need more information to decide if I want to do this. That's that confident amygdala moment. My, my old, the person that started this, the Confidence Institute with me, my co-founder, used to say there's an itchy moment. Like, you know, it's that moment where you kind of almost feel like you want to crawl out of your skin because you just don't feel comfortable. That's the amygdala screaming at you. Hey, time out. You need to think about this. Something may not be completely aligned with who you are, or what you want to value. And that's the trigger point. That's the moment you get the opportunity to make that decision. And most of the time people don't, they don't make the decision. They just react. So if we can kind of identify and grab those moments and be more thoughtful, mindful, whatever you want to call it, but, you know, put in the prefrontal, literally, we take control of ourselves. We stay calmer and we're more comfortable. We don't feel like we want to run out of our skin. Does that make sense, Emily? Makes complete sense. And as you're talking, I'm thinking that these experiences, I would think, build on each other. So if in that moment, should I apply for this job, you go through the self-talk and mindfulness and say, yes, I have wonderful talent skills and abilities that I can lend to this company. I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to do that. Then the next time you run into that experience, you'll have that history of, hey, I've done this before. It wasn't so bad. In fact, it worked out well for me. I'm going to step out again. And you create this positive pattern of confidence building. But then I'm thinking it could work the other way, where if in that initial moment, you talk yourself out of applying, you think, no, I'm not good enough. I could be rejected. I'm just going to sit tight and do nothing. And then the next time those growth opportunities come, are you more inclined to, again, repeat the same? You know, I had a history and I I didn't do it and it was scary. So I'm going to just keep doing what I've been doing. Is it self-perpetuating in either direction? Absolutely. So think of it this way. There are, we talk about muscle memory a lot, like in the Mm -hmm. sports, right? You practice a golf swing over and over again. You don't have to think about it, right? It's actually memory muscle is what it is. It's the other way around. So if you have those scripts, again, Emily, you aren't good at that. You, you know, you're not a good athlete. You're not a good in math. You're not whatever. Those start to build the scripts, scripts, scripts. And then all of a sudden, their default paths are like ruts or roots in your brain. They are neural pathways that have been created. So that gets triggered when you have that amygdala moment and you follow that path of negativity or unproductivity, right? Non-productivity. So what happens is you can absolutely strengthen them. Enough rugs get pulled out from under you. I like to say you get let go from a job, you have a bad relationship, 
whatever it might be that you feel, oh, there it is again, you trigger that thing and that it just reinforces, it builds it. Now, on the flip side, the beautiful thing is it's pretty easy, relatively speaking, to create new pathways, new roads, new routes, that when that gets triggered, you say, no, I'm not going down that ugly, bad road. I'm going to go down this new one. And so speaking it out loud, like you said, mantras and and self-affirmations, they actually do work, believe it or not. Other kinds of internal work we can do is really getting in touch with our values, our needs, and our wants. That's what we do at the Institute. We help people really look at that because when you're clear about those things, you set yourself a rule book. And so the more you have that rule book clear and, and you say to yourself, nope, you know what? That doesn't fit in with my rule book. Then you can make the decision easier and faster. And the more you do them, like you said, it reinforces it. It's muscle memory or memory muscle, right? You start to go default that way. So next time something happens, whether it's your kid throwing a tantrum in aisle two, or you're thinking about a job that you may or may not feel you're completely and hundred percent qualified for, you stop, you say, I'm going down this road, which is, hey, let me think about this. What could I do to make this happen? It's much more positive. It's much more productive. And quite honestly, it gives you the wherewithal to say, you know what? I'm human. I can do this like anyone else. You have fascinating insights, particularly on confidence at different ages and stages of life. And I was curious to know how confidence ebbs and flows over adolescence. And and you shared with me previously about a big moment at the age of 16. Well, young kids and anyone who's listening who has four, five, six, seven-year-olds, you know that they're fearless, right? They're going to say and do and wear anything they want to do, right? Because they are like this, I like this, this is me. And then by 16, we all of a sudden have this grand awakening to what the society expects or wants from us. Now, can it happen younger? Absolutely. And it's, you know, aggregate data is always doesn't always apply to everyone. But by age 16, we see a pretty big drop off boys, about 30% of confidence gets lost in girls, 50%. And it is that social reckoning that says, I don't belong, I don't fit in, people don't like me, I'm weird, I'm not cool, I'm a misfit. It literally is that age. And it takes us about 50 years. The average person doesn't regain the five-year-old self-confident level until they're 60. Because we have to figure this stuff out on our own. Like I said, nobody teaches us. And that is just unreal to me. That's why we're here. I was going to say, no parent wants to even think about their 16-year-old son or daughter having this major confidence hit and then never recovering until they're 60, 65. How do we stop that from happening to our kids? Well, you know what? If you want to make a grown-up cry, even a man, just say to them, you know, what could you have been if you had more confidence? <sighs> right? I mean, it's a terrible thought. I, you know, I Sometimes you have to go dark to get see the light, right? And Mm -hmm. the reality is this, there's a lot we can do to help our kids. And I think the first thing that we have to do is work on our own confidence. We as parents don't realize the direct neuropathic impact we have on our children. They are watching us 100% of the time. They're learning from the behavior. You freak out. You think it's no big deal. Trust me, that's a trauma to a child in some way, shape, or form. That's a pathway being built in their little beautiful heads. So we have to start to behave and act in a more confident way. We can't fake it till we make it. We have to get inside our own selves and really figure this stuff out. That's number one. Number two is we can't keep trying to tell them to fake it till we make it. And we do that every time we tell them they're great, beautiful, or otherwise superstars, right? And I'm not saying that you shouldn't compliment your child, 
But rather than say, wow, you, you know, you were great in that soccer game, you know, here's a trophy. We know that doesn't work. You have to be more precise. You have to say, you know, in that game, I really liked the way you did that play with that kid because this is what you did. I really thought that was awesome. So you start planning specific details of what looks good and their, you know, what good looks like. Um, you can also be helpful. Hey, you know what? That play didn't look so good to me. What do you think? How could, how could you have done better on there? So helping them start thinking and deconstructing things that they would like to improve and not making failure, of course, a tragedy, but making it an experiential positive lesson, right? And I think these things seem so obvious when I say it, but you know, how many of us have left the soccer field with a child and been like, oh, that was awesome or bummer. You know, that's the extent of it. We don't utilize that as a, a teaching moment. Um, I, I really do believe that, you know, teach somebody to fish, great. That's really great. But, you know, I think the lesson here is to show the child that you paid attention, that you were like noting things that, that were really good. You're noting things that could be improved and working together as a team to make whatever that particular issue, soccer game or a court card or whatever, better. I'm sure, Emily, you probably have childhood memories of situations as good, well-intentioned as all our parents probably were, that you say to yourself, I'll never do that to my child. You know, never tell them that they're not good enough, but we don't tell them, we don't help them to avoid that in the world by just kind of patting them on the back or dismissing performance, right? And how might we have hurt the millennial generation by doing that. I mean, they get a pretty bad rap for having gone through those experiences of everybody getting a trophy. And when they face challenge or failure, some struggle with that. Is there a direct correlation between those things? Exactly what you said. That is the direct correlation. You know, you're so great. You're awesome. And then they realize someday somehow that they're not. And they're like, wait a minute, mom lied to me. You know, mom, literally my biggest champion lied to me. Like that's trauma. Yeah, talk about a rug being pulled out from underneath of you. Right, and not knowing what to do next. Right, now what do I do? So I, she lied to me. What else What else do I stink at that I thought I was, you know, there's, there's a whole correlation of negative self-talk that gets launched. But the reality, so, you know, one of the things, it's a very simplistic example, nothing to do with being a mom per se, but when I started doing presentations, and I do, you know, 60, 70 a year now, so I'm kind of like used to this, but... People would always say, oh, Alyssa, great job. Great job. I really enjoyed that, right? It's it kind of like this polite way of passing me by after a presentation. And I'd be like, first, I was like, I must be so great. And then, you know, you read a feedback form that says, you know, you didn't do this. And you're like, ah, oh, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. Reality is this is that being polite, being, you know, kind is not helpful. I'm not, again, I'm not telling people not to be kind and, and compassionate, but just kind and not helpful is not a service to people. You know, tell them what is good. Tell them what's bad in a precise way. When somebody comes up and says to me, again, it's the same parallel. I really enjoyed your presentation. I will say to them, why? What was it that you enjoyed? Not to challenge them, but if they legitimately want to have a conversation, what? and I'll say to them, was there parts of there that didn't work for you? Or give me some suggestions. I'm not looking for people to critique. But, you know, use those opportunities to improve and be better. We don't do that as humans, and we don't teach that to our children. How the heck are we going to get better? How are we going to be resilient? We can't be if, if everything is, good job, Emily. Mm -hmm. and as you're talking, Alyssa, I feel like I'm having this 
huge aha moment, which is up until this conversation, I've always equated confidence with how we deal with our highs in life. But I'm hearing more, this is actually about how we deal with our lows. It's both. It's both, mm. you know. So celebrating when you do something great and make and when I say celebrating, it could be, hey, you know, that was a really good play you made. Let's celebrate that. Like let's just take a moment and do a happy dance, right? After a podcast, do like how often do you actually say to yourself, Yay, I did another podcast? You probably say to yourself, crying out loud, I got all this work to do. And a lot of the work we do at the Institute is not only brain science based, but it's based on high performance, professional Olympic athletes and sharpshooters and people that are really have done these things for decades that, you know, prove that we can juice up our brains with dopamine. We can make ourselves feel really good. And when we do that, we take that mindful moment of like, that was really good. We feel good, but we're also really laying that route, that new pavement, that new pathway in our brains that, that I want to do more of that. So we do have to celebrate the highs. We do have to recognize and we have to identify them. And yes, we have to look at the lows, but the lows in some ways, I want people to shift almost their label of it because it's not a low. You're not always going to be perfect and you're not always going to be quite honestly fit in with everything. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's normal. That's normal. It's not the new normal. It's not the now normal. Always has, always will be normal. But there are significant pressures to fit in, even in the little things. You tell this great story about your mother-in-law who, with all the best intentions, advised you what to wear to a function. But it really hit you hard what she said. That was like a, a power moment for me. Yeah, as I said to her, you know, it's a big New York wedding thing. And I was like, you know, formal, not formal. Like, give me some guidance. And she said, just blend. And I was like, what? <laughs> just blend. Just blend. Just blend. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's a genetic or cultural, uh, you know, who knows why people have their own drum beats and are proud of them versus other people that want to blend. But I've never been a blender. I do really think that we should celebrate our uniquenesses. I think all this talk about authenticity is kind of off kilter too. It's it's an invitation for people to be obnoxious. And that's not what I want people to embrace about authenticity. But authenticity is of my DNA and of the experiences and chemistry that I come forward in the world. This is who I am. This is who I am. You know, Zach, I asked him one day, you know, if you could make a magic, which would it be to get rid of dystonia? And his answer was, I won't kid you, it doesn't make life easier, but it makes me who I am. And I'm proud of who I am. And, you know, that's the goal. That's the goal to to embrace who you are, no matter what, you know, Zach also has some great perspective to use to say what makes a disability hard is when it's invisible to others, and then it shows up and it surprises people. And he says, knowing how to um, introduce it properly if and when it shows up, if you want to. He says, all oh, that's part of the learning. It makes it hard, particularly when you're a kid, you know, you're supposed to shake somebody's hand, they, you know, the person taken aback because he has a different kind of handshake. He says, but it makes me memorable. It makes me who I am. And once they kind of, once I help them or once they get past some of that initial embarrassment shock, he said, then they realize that. I'm not embarrassed by it, so they shouldn't be, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I just, again, he's my superhero because he has these perspectives mm-hmm. that, like, it, it kind of hit me between the eyes. I was like, 
misfit no like anyone who's not a misfit is the misfit because being a misfit makes you special Mm-hmm. Oh, I love every word you're saying. I mean, that's exactly my heart behind the podcast because you're right. And our kids need to know that and our kids need to hear that. Because unfortunately, what I see is kids feel like a misfit. And rather than, oh gosh, expressing that incredible wisdom that your son shares, they lose their confidence over feeling like a misfit. Okay, so I want to throw a tough scenario at you. So you're helping your child and they say, I can't do this. I hate this. I'll never be good at this. I'm not smart. You know, we've all been there and those are tough. That's a really tough moment. And I've even heard parents who say, I've tried to say, no, you can, you're smart, you're capable, and it's still not working. What do we do in those moments to help our our children regain their confidence? Well, Maybe it's not regain. Maybe mm-hmm. it's right. Maybe that's again a, another word that we have to kind of rephrase. It's not regain. Is that they don't have the confidence, and we need to find a way to give it to them. I, I don't have the magic answer. It's not like a magic pill you mm-hmm. can give them or an exercise you can do. But I think one of the the secrets is to say, you know, there's a lot of stuff I don't like to do, and that I stick at. And sometimes we have to like power through some of these things because they're important in the bigger picture and explain to them why, right? Like my other son, Ben, who is very different than Zach in, in every way, shape or form. One of the things he's always struggled with is math. Right? He just hates math. He's not, he says, I'm not good at it. I don't like it. And I love math. Zach loves math. So like, of course you can do math, Ben. You've got the gene, you know, whatever. <laughs> not going to help him. But when we realize that he he's an amazing chef, like going to be a professional, and trust me, he will be very famous because he's really amazing and has this incredible attitude. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until we were like, well, let's put it in context of that. And we would take out measuring cups and spoons and things that he, you know, when he was like seven or eight, it was helpful to put it into something that he did feel confident in and that was applicable. So I think as parents, sometimes we have to kind of back off and, you know, my husband's a fifth grade teacher and and he will even say this is just because they teach it that way in school, or that's the way you learned may not work for other people, of course, but putting it in context of something that they feel more comfortable and confident so that you can now build that pathway for them, if you will, in a comfortable place. So you and what you're doing is you're kind of calming down that amygdala, right? Their amygdala is going, hey math, hate math, hate math, stuck in math, can't do math. Oh my God, I hate this, hate this, hate this. And you gotta go, you know what? It's alright. Math's not for everybody, but you love cooking. So let's put you in a happy place, get you in a calm. Now let's put a little bit of bath on top of that. So I think we have to search for happy. We have to search for confident. And build on it, not necessarily assume that they're going to be great math because we want them to be. That is fantastic advice. That makes so much sense. And it's really setting them up for success in that instance, rather than setting them up for failure. And, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over (laughs) and over and expecting a different result, right? And I think that's what our kids feel like when we say, you know, just hunker down, just go at it again. And I love that you suggest first, take a break, right? Everybody needs to calm down the amygdalas in those instances. And then let's switch things up, you know, to your husband's point. Not everybody learns the same way. Not everybody operates the same way. Try it a different way and try a different context 
one that your child is more favorable to, their guard will be down, their emotions will be down, and they'll surprise themselves, right? Oh, I learned math while cooking. You know, that I can do this. That's a great success. And then celebrate it, like we were talking about before. Do a little happy dance together. Like, you just did math, dude. All right. You know what? Feed that and they feed that whole brain with some, you know, I'm using some technical terms here, but literally you're feeding some dopamine, some adrenaline, making them feel really good. And guess what? They're going to become addicts because they want to feel good again. So they're going to do more math as a result. So it self-perpetuates itself. But you take small wins and you just keep building on. And next thing you know, they're going to be like, mom, let's do some math. I love that. Love. Alyssa, I could talk to you (laughs) all day long. There's so much I know to unpack and we've only scratched the surface. So folks want to learn more about you and your work. How can they do that? Well, the Institute is AmericanConfidenceInstitute.com. My own website for my speaking and some other things that if you have an organization and would like something brought into your company or nonprofit, please call or contact me on alyssadevere.com, A-L-Y-S-S-A-D-V-E-R.com. I'm sure you'll post that in the notes too, right? Absolutely. Yep. And if you sign up for our episode insider, you'll have all that information on Alyssa. So make sure everybody go to mothersofmisfits.com, sign up to receive that in your inbox every Tuesday so you can have the insider info on Alyssa and all of our other fantastic guests. Thank you again for coming on and making us more confident parents so we can have more confident kids. Oh, I love that. Thank you for having me, Emily. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also invite you to visit us at mothersofmisfits.com.